You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Esther 5, we're right about at the, uh, the halfway mark throughout our series in Esther 5. Uh, well, let me, let, me, let me start with this. If, if I were to meet you for the first time, how would you introduce yourself? If I were to ask, tell me a little bit about yourself, what, what would you say? How do you most frequently introduce yourself? Well, the reality is that there's a lot that gets revealed when you introduce yourself, because when you're trying to make a first impression, you're trying to present yourself to someone in such a way that they'll know who you are, or at least who you want them to think you are. We call that our identity, how you perceive yourself, or at least how you present yourself to be perceived by others. And your identity, by the way, my identity, interestingly enough, and like it or not, it really determines where you end up. It determines how you live your life. It determines the kinds of decisions that you make. It determines the things that you decide you will do or you will not do. Someone said it like this, and I quote, when you know who you are, you know what to do. As we look at Esther chapter 5, and I hope that you brought your Bibles. If not, we have it on the screens. As we look at Esther chapter 5 today, here's kind of the big idea. Here's the destination that I want us to arrive at at the end, by the end of the sermon. Even though I have, uh, I'm going to have three main points for today. Here's the destination that I want us to arrive at by the end of the sermon. No matter what you find your identity in, in this world, in, in, in your life, Jesus gives a way better identity. If we can go home with this, understanding this in uh, you know, more depth and, and really believing that that's the case, uh, mission accomplished. And I pray that God will do that in our hearts. And what you're going to see in Esther 5, what we're going to see in Esther 5 today is a case study with Esther and her identity, and then this evil villain, as I call him, Haman, and his idolatry. Let me start by saying this. The way we come to understand ourselves and our identity starts when we're little. I mean, were you the chubby one? Were you the smart one? Were you the, you know, uh, whatever, the, the cute one? And this can be in relation to your siblings or your friends. And, 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 and as you get a little bit older, you know, every stage of life, are you the jock? Are you the artist? Are you the creative one? And identity starts to get established. Who you are or who you perceive yourself to be. And then you start approaching your teen years. I, I know I skipped a bunch of years in there, but who wants to talk about your you know, junior high? We're left with a bunch of weird photos that no one wants to see. But anyways, you approach your teen, year, your, your teen years, your high school years, and now your identity is largely formed by, well, what's your, what's your grade point average? Who are you dating? How, how, do you, how do you dress to present yourself? And a lot of that helps establish your identity. That's why sometimes students will have a crisis, right? And they change their appearance. They change their color, uh, you know, their, their hair color and clothing to fit with a different crowd. We see this all the time in high school. To be approved, to assume an identity so that they can have a tribe, a clique to run with. Also, what happens to sort of increase and I'll say this, aggravate this whole thing is social media, right? It doesn't really help. 
Instagram, for instance, what photos am I going to put up to show everyone who I am? Or Facebook, what am I going to tell everyone I'm doing or not doing? And all of which is trying to create an identity for each one of us. This is who I am or who I want you to perceive me to be. Now, this whole thing continues on into college, right? And, and then you have a kind of chance to reset all of that, right? It's like, well, maybe high school was kind of weird and it didn't go so well for me and I want to reinvent myself. I, I'm going to do things differently. And again, an identity gets established by dating relationships and, and, and major and performance in class and other activities. And then you graduate in your identity. Well, it, you know, what, what, what job are you going to get? Are you going to continue on and, you know, to grad school? Are you in a relationship? Are you buying a condo now? What, what car are you driving? And it continues, and, and you get the point. And then you get married, and now your identity is in relation to someone else, and it gets a little bit difficult and interesting. And then, can we have kids? Can we not have kids? How many kids can we have? And, and all of a sudden, you've got an identity crisis because you have a life change, and it's such a life change at that point in life. And what happens is some of us never really get clear on who we are or at least who we're supposed to be. And some of us are continually conflicted. It's almost as if there's an identity crisis for the rest of our lives. So here's our first point that we want to make this morning. So three points, well, this is the first one. Esther's identity changes, has yours changed? Esther's identity changes, has yours changed? Now let's look into this case study of Esther. As we already know, Maybe a little bit of a recap here. Esther's a woman who has two names in the book of Esther. We've seen that, right? Uh, Hadessa, which is her Hebrew name, and then Esther, which is her Persian name. And throughout the book, or at least up until chapter four, it's as if she has a continual identity crisis and conflict. Who is she? Is she the Persian girl? Is she the Hebrew girl? You know, is she one of God's people? Is she not one of God's people? Or her ultimate allegiance to King Xerxes or to King Jesus? We just don't know. She's not really holding any Bible studies as we saw, you know, the movie uh, One Night with the King. She's not really like that in the Bible. Totally different, right? Not really praying, not really mentioning God's name. No one is, right? So throughout this whole drama so far, it's as if she's kind of passive, not really taking a stance. But that kind of changes in chapter 4 right? And, and, and we get to see some action from her. And, and Lucas talked about it last Sunday. But until chapter four, it's as if, again, she's conflicted. She's got two names. She has a conflicted identity. Now, let me pause there for a second, just a quick side note, and ask you this question. How many of us are just like that? Maybe none of us here this morning. You know, kind of sometimes Christian, sometimes not, <laughs> you know? Sometimes holy, sometimes not. We take full seasons not being holy and like, ah, you know. Sometimes living for God, sometimes hiding from God, sometimes being generous, sometimes being stingy, sometimes living for the glory of God, sometimes living for our convenience and comfort. And there's a conflicted identity. That's what it is. If, if we wouldn't know any better, the Bible calls these people lukewarm Christians or nominal Christians. It's just a name. There's no evidence that the Holy Spirit is working inside of me, transforming me to become more like Christ. And what happens, end of side note, and what, what happens in chapter four, and then our chapter for today, chapter five, is that a series of circumstances shift and press Esther to arrive at an identity, I believe. 
And the same thing happens for Haman, the evil villain, and they both respond differently, so they make fantastic comparative case studies. We will start with Esther's identity from verses 1 to 8, so we'll split our whole chapter in two sections. So 1 to 8, Esther, and then 9 to 14, Haman. Again, our first point is Esther's identity changes. Has yours changed? Let's, let's read. You can remain seated. It's quite a big portion of, of Scripture. So verses 1 to 8. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of king's, the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king in Haman Come today for a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, before we get into chapter 5 and kind of go deeper into this first point, let's do a quick recap. If, you, if you've missed some of the you know, previous Sundays, let's kind of take it from the beginning. I think we'll, there's a lot to learn from this. Here's, what, here's what's going on. Xerxes is the king of Persia. He rules and reigns over the largest, most powerful empire in the history of the world up until that time. Roman, I think Roman Empire was bigger. He deposed of his wife, Queen uh, Vashti, because she disobeyed him. What happened is that he had a weird uh, request, foolish request for her to parade her naked just with her crown in, in front of his chauvinistic, drunken friends. So she said no, rightfully so. He didn't like being disobeyed, so he divorced and banished her. Some four years later, he holds a competition because he was, you know, he had some really weird um, uh, friends around him. He holds a competition and he spends one night with perhaps hundreds of women, one night at a time, and he takes the one that is his favorite and he announces her as queen. This is where Esther kind of comes in. He picks Esther. At this point, they have been married for five years. But they're not close. We read in chapter 4, and I'm not sure if you picked this up last week with Lucas, chapter 4, that, that she, she had not seen him in 30 days, the king. And it wasn't because he was off doing missionary work in China. That was not the case. They lived in the palace together. She's over in the women's quarters. He's over in the men's quarters, the, you know, uh, the king's quarters. And that means that he's bringing through different women from the harem night after night. That's what that means. And has not yet any, had any contact with his queen in a month. So they're not doing great. And during this season, what happened is that Xerxes, to add another layer of, 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 to, you know, to the story, what happened is that Xerxes had empowered a man, this evil villain that we'll talk about more today, named Haman, to be a bit of a kind of a right-hand man, uh, kind of like a vice president, if you may. And everyone bowed down to Haman based upon Xerxes' decree. Everyone should bow down before him, with the exception of a Jewish man named Mordecai. 
Well, Mordecai decides when everyone else bows, I'm not going to do that. And Haman gets furious and Mordecai won't stop doing it. So then Haman decides he's not going to only destroy Mordecai, but he's going to assassinate, he's going to commit genocide on all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Mordecai is Jewish. Now, history estimates that around 750,000 people to a few million people are going to be put to death in a Holocaust. That's how, it's kind of a big range there, but at least we have an idea. That's a lot of people, right? Now, Esther's in the palace, and she hears of this. This man, Mordecai, was her adoptive father, uh, her older cousin. Her parents died. We don't know how that came about when she was young. So she's an orphan girl. But now the truth is that she is, she's Jewish too, yet no one knows it. Her identity has been concealed up until this point. So she has to devise a plan by which to try and save her people from this genocide. Now, because she's Persian royalty now and in Jewish ancestry, she has the opportunity now to be a mediator of sorts and to represent her people before the king. Just kind of a, a, a side note, what a beautiful picture of our, of our true savior Jesus, isn't it? You know, he, he was fully God and he became men as well to mediate between us and God, to save us so we wouldn't die and to bring us into the presence of a holy and a perfect God. End of side note. But, but, but here's the problem. The rule is, the law was in, in that time that you can only enter the king's presence if he invites you. And this could be a problem. This, this guy really doesn't like to get interrupted. Uh, he sits on his throne in his majestic palace. And if you come before him seeking the presence of the king uninvited, he would have this, and we just read about it, this golden scepter. And if he tipped it towards you, you could walk forward, touch the end of it. And that was him agreeing that he had invited you. So you could come in his presence and, you know, you can have a conversation. But if he didn't tip his scepter, they would simply just chop your head off. No biggie, right? <laughs> so, so this is the kind of thing that you don't just gamble on. Right? You don't try to get a meeting with the king unless you really, really, really need to. Um, and actually, we see this at the end of chapter 4, verse 16, where Esther says, if I perish, I perish. She was referring to, man, this could go wrong really quickly. Now, what happens at the beginning of our chapter for today, chapter 5, we see this in verse 1. Esther dresses up in, in royal robes, so she's respecting and honoring her husband king, even though he's not a particularly respectable man. But she's demonstrating, I believe, great wisdom in this. Now, she's been fasting for three days. She had her people fast, right, uh, before she seeks the access to have access to the king to appeal for the life of, of her people, right, who are under a death sentence. Now, Esther is able to maintain her emotional composure. What she realizes is that it's not time yet to tell the king the whole story. So rather than launching with, you know, hey, I'm a Jew, and I'm sorry, I didn't tell you this for the last five years. Oops, Haman's Hitler, and he wants to commit genocide. You need to do something about it. You got you to do something about it, right? So she's wise about it. She's trying to rebuild a relationship that is at least strained with her husband. She's not seen him in a month, like we said. He's not been faithful to her. And so she's trying to earn his trust, keep an eye on Haman, and at the same time devise a plan, a wise plan. So she leads with, let's have dinner again. And we'll talk about it tomorrow. She, she's not only wise, but I believe that she is loving, gracious, kind, 
excuse me, I was just one. <laughs> She's demonstrating, I believe, what Galatians calls, do you remember? The fruit of the spirit. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> She's demonstrating what we just studied in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit. How do you see that? I think it's so beautiful to see that. Now, I believe that Esther has come a long way in a maturing relationship with God. She's now starting to own her own faith. She's thinking of others, not just herself. She's active and not passive. She's speaking and not silent. She's taking a risk, which is faith, and not cowering, which is fear, right? Now, another way of saying this is that she decides to embrace, I believe, her true identity. It's no longer Hadassah and Esther. This woman has no longer a conflicted identity. Now, she's still a Persian princess, yes, but, or a queen, I should say, but that only explains her. It does not define her. In church, this is very important to know when we speak of our identity in Christ. Here's a good quote in regards to our identity in Christ, and I quote, The things that happen to me might explain me, but they do not define me. And the more we focus on who we are in Christ, the less it matters who we were in the past, or even what happened to us, end quote. Now, Esther's parents died, and she's an orphan. That may explain her, but it doesn't define her. How many of us, we blame it on how our upbringing, and this and that, and excusing the way we live, and the unholy ways we live. Now, no, you know, you got to know that my parents this, and my grandparents this, and this happened to me, so I'm just a victim. We use that so much. See, Mordecai has not been the greatest adoptive father. That may explain her, but it doesn't define her. She entered a competition that was super unholy, if you ask me, and that may explain her, but it doesn't define her. She, she's now the queen of Persia. That may explain her, but it doesn't define her. Her identity has changed. I believe that in chapter 5, she, she now knows that she belongs to God. That's why in chapter 4, she asks her people, hey, pray for three days. So that within three days, I can go before the king and, and try to save you, you know? Church, if our identity is, I'm not one of God's people versus I am one of God's people, that changes absolutely everything. If you're not one of God's people, then your identity is something that, that must be achieved by your beauty. Good luck with that. Achieved by your, by your success, by your income, by how many kids you have, by if I'm married or not, good luck with that. Your dating relationships or, or whatever. But if you're one of God's people and you know it and you trust it, your identity is not achieved, but it's received. You just receive it and you believe in that. You're loved, you're forgiven. That's where you start off. You're cared for, you're blessed. You don't have to impress anyone. You don't have to, especially God, by your filthy works, right? Do you know what happens to a child when they're born? Their parents just love that child. Remember, uh, Eli was the sweetest baby. (laughs) Emma knows where I'm going with this, and the rest of you, because he's loud now, and he's like, wow, that cute thing turned into, you know, a two-year-old exactly right that's normal but you know like wow that's what it, but he's so loved i love him more now not that he's turned to that but he's just he's just he's just loved because he's a part of the family he's ours right so you that's where you start the child hasn't performed yet the child you know hasn't accomplished anything yet the child hasn't achieved anything yet they don't they don't they don't work for their identity right they work from their identity their love their care for their part of the family Church, so it is 
when we are born again in Christ Jesus. We receive a new identity. And we don't live for our identity, trying to impress God. See, that's the problem with the whole world. Marketing and and advertising just pressures us to compete, right? To compete all the time, to buy the new house, to buy the new car, to buy those clothes so we can assume an identity, right? And to purchase so that way you can produce an identity. But we don't work for our identity. We work from our identity in Christ. If God loves us, And if you truly believe that God loves you, well, then we can just love others, right? And we don't have to manipulate or need to manipulate people to love us so we can be loved. No, it's enough that I know that God loves me. If God cares for us, that well, that's more than enough, isn't it? That means that we don't need other people desperately to be there for us. And when friends and family fail us, which happens all the time because we do the same to them, we can forgive them because we're still cared for because God loves us. Amen? When we sin, it's not the end because we know that God is God forgives us and, 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 and he changes people and there's hope for us. Do you see how it works, church? The whole world lives for their identity. Only a Christian can live from their identity. For the non-Christian, identity is something achieved. For the Christian, it's something received. And by the way, do you know why our life so many times is not really marked by holiness in a, a, a kind of a first love for Jesus necessarily? Because we have a conflicted identity. That's why. We still have doubt about our identity in Christ. And so we're caught in this vicious cycle of pursuing an identity apart from Christ that leads only to misery. Now it ends up in misery one of two ways. We kind of touched on this a couple of weeks ago. Now let's just say that you set yourself an identity you aspire to, you know, I want to be married and that's it, man. That's it. I'm going to set my identity on that. I want to have kids and that's it. I want to be healthy. I want to lose weight, whatever, whatever you set your identity to be in. If you labor for that identity and you accomplish it, chances are you get proud. And that's exactly what happened to Haman. And we'll see that in in just a few moments. You get very arrogant. You become self-righteous and self-justified, right? And then you start to have contempt for everyone else. Well, you're not there. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You're, you know, come on, you can do it. I did it. Or if you try and fail, you're just depressed. You're the most miserable person around. I got dumped. Nobody asked me out, you know. I'm getting older. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. You know, we, we were trying to have kids and we can't conceive. We had so many miscarriages, right? I was going to be healthy and live a really long life, but then the doctor said that I'm diagnosed with cancer. So that will lead you to despair in a heartbeat. But Esther's identity, it looks like, has changed. So she can say things like, if I perish, I perish. Meaning, if I die, I die. It's in God's hands. He is my God, and I trust in him. And I know that he loves me no matter what he allows in my life. Now, let me ask you a question. And this is probably a great question for our D group on Thursday. So please come out Thursday, 6.30. What is your identity in? What is it? What is my identity in? Back to my original question, if you were to introduce yourself, how would you present yourself or, or, or how would you want yourself to be perceived? That's very telling. I'm, and I'm not talking about your theoretical identity. I'm talking about your practical identity, your functional identity. I'm asking it like this because on paper, you know, theoretically, a lot of people would say that, well, I find my identity in Christ, but that's just not the case because we can look at your life and that's just not the case, Right? A lot to think about, right? 
And sometimes we don't even know that we have a false functional identity. Until God opens our eyes, and I pray that he would for all of us here and all the Summit family, and that he allows life circumstances to throw us off kilter and then to all know. I've had my identity in comfort and convenience and money, and I just didn't know it until I got sick or until something happened. And some of us have a conflicted identity, just like Esther. It's Hadassah and Esther. I don't know which one. And she comes to a firm foundation, I believe, of a new identity as someone who belongs to God, as someone who is loved by God, someone who, is, who found favor in the sight of God. We see this expression quite a few times. Someone who's forgiven by God. And, and believe me, don't believe me, believe the Bible. And that changes how she perceives herself and also that changes how she lives her life. So what's your actual practical functional identity? Esther's identity changes. Has yours changed? Let's continue reading from verse uh, 9 to 14. So verse 19 to 14. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. (laughs) Just, Just keep that in mind, okay? He was super excited. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with anger. So going from one extreme to the other in a matter of whatever, a few minutes. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, right? All the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. I wonder how, how long they, 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 you know, they had to come up with that crazy evil solution. Like, wow, okay, just like that. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Like this idea pleased Haman, and then he he had the gallows made. Now, the next point that we want to make is this. Haman is an idolater. Are you? Haman is is an idolater. Are we? Are you? Now, here comes the case study on Haman. This guy loves glory. He loves power. He loves recognition. He loves control. He loves wealth. Not hard to observe that from the reading of the passage. It's pretty clear that his identity is in success, in public recognition. His identity is in public honor. Verse 9 says, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Why? Well, because Esther, the queen, invited him to dinner with the king. Again, this guy made it. He's so important now. He's so successful. Excuse me. He's made it. He's Haman the Great, you know? He's never been happier, never been prouder. I mean, he is the best, it's the best day of Haman's whole life. He was chosen by the great King Xerxes to be the right hand, his right-hand man. Xerxes says everyone needed to bow before him, right? And now he's going to dinner with Xerxes and, the, and, and his queen. Like, wow, that's, this guy just made it. Now, check this out. His identity is more like idolatry. And that happens when your identity is in something or someone else other than God, but it's next level. It's next level. 
You worship it. You live for it now. And Haman is a good case study for that. This guy's made it, right? And he's living the king's party. Who does he see? Mordecai, the guy who wouldn't bow down to him. The guy who's made a real stink about it, right? The guy who's wearing sackcloth and ashes, the guy who's doing a public protest. Well, what's Haman going to do? Well, actually, end of verse 9 and verse 10 says that he he was filled with wrath against Mordecai, but he restrained himself. And then he just called his wife and kind of his posse, right? This guy had the best day ever. I'm second most powerful man on the earth, very rich. The king is my friend. His wife likes me. I keep having dinner with him. I get to do whatever I want. I even have a wife and some friends, but there's one thing that's not right. One guy, he's not even that important in the whole kingdom, just won't bow down to me. And that ruins everything. Church, the issue is not Mordecai. The issue is Haman's idolatry. He loves respect, honor. He loves recognition. That's his God. And Mordecai just happens to be the one who exposes his idol. Let me ask, what is your idol? And what are some of the things or people that exposes that idol in your life? You and I will form an identity, right? Exactly what we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. And if our identity escalates into idolatry, and it does so many times, it leads to our misery. That's just the way it works. Now, let's define idolatry for a second because the Bible has a lot to say about idolatry. This is a big problem in the Bible. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, right? where God's people would turn away from God, worshiping God, and they would start worshiping other gods. And just in case you missed it, God abhors, God hates idolatry. Did you know that the very first commandment God gave to his people in the law of Moses, and we have this in Exodus chapter 20, verse three is this, you shall have no other gods before me, the first one. It tells us to put God first, practically. That's what it is. The first commandment lays an essential foundation, church, that all the other commandments build upon. That's why here at Summit, our first value is Jesus is my treasure. Because if Jesus is not our treasure, something else is going to be our treasure. If you get this one wrong, you get all all of them wrong. You get Christianity wrong, right? Martin Luther gives us a good definition of what an idol is. And I quote, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is your God, your functional savior. Hmm. Additionally, a great biblical counselor, David Paulison, says it like this. We take good things. So as Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in. So we take good things and we make them God things. Now back to our story. What's Haman's idolatry? Well, power, control, recognition, respect, Now, he would call himself a leader, but he's not. He's an idolater all day long. Now, here's what happens. Good things become God things, and that's an evil thing. That's a bad thing. Let me ask you this. Is it bad for a man to appreciate honor and respect? No, it's a good thing. The Bible says that, you know, children, honor your mother and father. Citizens, honor your, you know, your governing officials. The Bible is not against honor and respect, but we can take something like honor and have it be such an identity for us that we worship it and we love it and we live for it. And here's what happens. If you idolize one thing, you demonize another thing if it's not Christ. If you don't idolize, well, idolize, if you don't worship Jesus, you will demonize 
something else, right? This is what Jonathan Edwards said, one of the greatest, I believe, theologians in the history of the United States of America. He says, he said, if you idolize, you demonize. Do you know what Haman has done? He's idolized his race, the Persians. Do you know what he's going to do? Demonize the Jews. That's how racism comes into being. Haman is going to idolize honor and he's going to demonize Mordecai who dishonored him. He idolizes public recognition, so he's going to demonize Mordecai for not recognizing him publicly. And what what he's going to do is he's going to seek to crucify him publicly to make him suffer, to make him pay. And by the way, these gallows that the Bible talks about, that his friends and wife suggested, they are talking about a gigantic, a gigantic instrument of torture. It was 75 feet tall. Commentators say that, nah, that's an allegory. We don't believe that. 75 feet tall. He wants it as high as possible so everyone can see. Don't disobey Haman, right? He's making a public spectacle here. That's the goal. I believe that the height of of the gallows shows the intensity of his idolatry. Now, this is the root of so much human conflict and strife, church. We idolize our nation, so we demonize other nations, right? We idolize our income, so we demonize anyone who would do anything that might reduce that bottom line, right? We idolize comfort, so we demonize anyone who would cause us to be uncomfortable and unconvenienced. We idolize love, and if they should fail us, oh, we demonize them. See, Esther is growing and maturing. She's got wisdom and patience and self-control and a wise plan for the good of others. Because Esther's identity is in, I'm a child of God. Now, Haman's identity is in his performance and others' perception of him. Haman's identity has become idolatry. And usually what happens when your identity becomes idolatry, when your identity is in your idols, the things you love so much, the things you replace God with, what happens is people violently will defend their idols. Just think of the spirit of Hamas. In the Muslim world, idolizing their prophet, Muhammad, and how they demonize Israel and Christianity. It's the same spirit. We see this throughout the book of Acts, too. This is why there are riots where Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel so many times and and, and why there's so much conflict around Christianity because Christianity comes along to reset your idolatry and remove, uh, reset your identity, uh, rather, and remove your idolatry and people violently defend their idols. And by the way, you don't oftentimes know what your idol is until it's under the threat of being taken away. You're dating someone and all of a sudden you feel like the relationship is shaky and you go to a very, very dark place. Mm, that, could have, that, that, that could have been an idol. God gives you a child. You love them as you ought and you should, but you don't perhaps recognize that so much of your identity is established in parenting. And all of a sudden the child gets sick or diagnosed with something or they get hurt and you go to a very dark place. And I'm not talking about grieving. <laughs> I'm, not talk- I'm talking about blaming God and others and always being bitter about it and never recovering from that. That's what I'm talking about. Let me ask, what do you get super emotional about? I've asked myself these questions this week, and it was, it was, it was, it was pretty uh, convicting. What causes you to get angry? What causes you to get depressed? What is it? 
What causes you to get super happy and overjoyed? What, what, what is it? We've just seen the emotional spectrum in Haman. When his idol is fed, he's so happy. He's so happy. When his idol is threatened, he's violent. Some in our culture would be diagnosed as bipolar, but it's probably just idolatry. Again, I'm not making a, there is bipolar, that's a disorder. I'm not taking that away. When their idol is flourishing, they are overjoyed. When their idol is threatened, they become violent. This happens, I believe, a lot of times. So what's your idolatry? If you're not sure, if you're not sure, friend, if you're not sure, follow your emotions. Follow your emotions. What are you afraid of losing? What if it was made public about you would destroy your life, would destroy you? Do you know what the final line in the letter of 1 John says? This was way back a couple of years ago. We went through 1 John, talking about 1 John 5, 21. John says this to the church. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's a mic drop. That's it, you know? He finishes with this. I, I, you know, it's, it's so, it was so interesting to me, even when I studied 1 John, that why would you finish with that? Anyways, this is a loving and gracious invitation at the end of this sermon to not use God to feed our idolatry, our idols. Because sometimes we do that, you know? Our comfort and convenience and maybe a certain amount of money, that is our idolatry, right? And, and then we pray for more because it feels good. We pray for more, and it's nothing, nothing wrong to pray for, you know, for more money or for a house or a car, but sometimes God knows, God knows always how the condition of our hearts. And sometimes what we're doing is we're just feeding, we're just using God to feed our idolatry because we want more of that that feels good. Let's not use God to feed our idolatry, but I'm inviting us, this is what I'm doing now, I'm inviting us before God through Jesus Christ to remove our idolatry and to be fully satisfied in him. To be satisfied in our identity as children of God, that he is truly our treasure. Not comfort, not convenience, not our kids, not health. I have good news for us, church. We don't have to live with our identity and our, our idolatry. We don't, we don't have to. If you read the story ahead, let me just spoil it for you but I'm sure all of us or most of us know how it ends up. But Haman never changes. It's sad. He never repents. You're going to read it in the coming weeks, but his life ends miserably and tragically and shamefully. And the one thing he didn't want, public dishonor, that's exactly what happens to him because idols lie. They promise satisfaction. They promise a peaceful existence, but they will never deliver. Now, Esther, in comparison, she has a change of identity and her life doesn't end in brutal tragedy and misery. It's not perfect, but it's glorifying God and it's noble. She's not so consumed with herself. She's concerned about others. She's willing to lose her life if others may be saved. So in a tragic, twisted way, Haman wants to take everyone else's life and he ends up losing his own. Whereas Esther was willing to lose her life, and, but God allowed her to be spared. So is your identity in Christ, and, and do you have idols in your life? Let me close with this. Jesus gives a better identity. Jesus gives a way better identity. The problem is that Haman lived for his glory. 
But Jesus lives for the glory of God. Haman made God's people his enemy. But Jesus makes his enemies his friends if you put your faith in him. Haman would not forgive one man for one thing. But Jesus will forgive anyone for anything if you put your faith in him. Haman made a cross to hang a man upon, but Jesus came as a man to hang upon a cross for all men. Haman forced people to bow to him in fear, but Jesus invites people to bow to him in love. Jesus gives a better identity. Haman boasted about what he had done, which is pride and it will lead to idolatry. But when we boast of what Jesus had done for us at the cross, It is worship. Haman sought to achieve his identity through his works, but in Jesus, we receive a new identity through his works. Also, Esther was clothed in royal robes. We read that in first verses, right? But in Jesus Christ, we are clothed in the splendor of the righteousness of our king. Esther was welcomed into the presence of King Xerxes, but once, but once, but because of King Jesus, we are welcomed into the presence of God continually. Esther prepared a lavish banquet for King Xerxes, but King Jesus is, but King Jesus is preparing a, a banquet that you can never fathom, that, that you'll be blown away when you're going to be a part of. And Xerxes offered Esther half of his kingdom. But our king offers us his entire kingdom, but more than that, himself. Jesus gives a way better identity. Church, I I was convicted this week, as I am, going through these studies. I want to have it at the forefront of who I am every single day, that I am a child of God. I want to wake up believing that. I want to wake up at night at three o'clock and know who I am to set my identity in Christ that, man, I am a child of God and no one can take that away from me. I do not want to put my identity or aspire to or, or, or have my identity in anything else or anyone else other than Jesus Christ because that will lead to misery. Would you do the same? Would you do the same? And let's, Let's settle on this. We are God's children. And let's be reminded of this and remind yourself by, by, by communing with God on a daily basis, by being in the word and in prayer, and then when we get together, reminding yourself who we are, who you are, so that we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of our, our identity in him. Amen. Would you stand with me? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.